0: All right, let's go ahead and take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. And then if you have a copy of the confession, we're going to read paragraph number 3. And we'll be looking at paragraphs 3, 4, and 5, at least in a summary fashion this morning. But we're going to mainly be examining paragraph 3 as we work our way through uh, chapter number 6 of the fall of man of sin and of the punishment thereof. But I want to begin there in First Corinthians chapter number 15 and let's look together. Uh, let's begin in verse number 21 and we'll read through verse 23 and then drop down to verse 45 through 49. So First Corinthians 15 verse 21. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ is the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. And then drop down to verse 45. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last, Adam, was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly." And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit corruption. Now, before we get into that particular text, let's go ahead and look at paragraph three of the confession. As we continue to deal with the fall of Adam and Eve, of course, and the implications of that. Paragraph three says, they being the root and by God's appointment, standing in the room and stead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin and by nature, children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death and all other miseries, spiritual temporal, and eternal unless the Lord Jesus set them free. As we look at these subjects this morning and we consider uh, we have arrived at the third time period in which paragraph six deals with. We have been dealing with before the fall, at the fall, and this morning verses three, four, and five teach us about after the fall. In other words, what are the ramifications or the characteristics of the things that happened as a result? Or we can say after the fall. We're going to deal with this in five parts this morning, primarily dealing with the, the subject or the topic of imputation. But in our confession, it mentions two words that are really important. We see the word imputed and we see the word conveyed. So we're dealing with two aspects, imputation And conveyance or to be conveyed. Now, as we think about this this morning and we deal and think about what it means, the imputation, imputation has negative and positive consequences. In other words, when we think about imputation, we are accustomed, especially in our church, we're accustomed to rejoicing in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And everyone who's in Christ, we rejoice in that truth because without his righteousness being added to our account, we are people hopeless, we're miserable, we have no hope of the resurrection, we have no hope of eternal life with Christ. But imputation also has a negative side. The negative side is, is that what happened in Adam, what he did by his fall, that nature was also imputed to us. It was placed into our account. So as we deal with this this morning, I really want to think about five different uh, parts. Uh, First of all, we want to deal with imputation on the negative side, or imputation or a corrupt account. Number two, we'll deal with the idea of conveyance, and think about a corrupt nature. Thirdly, we'll deal again with imputation, a new account. Fourthly, we'll deal again with conveyance, a new nature. And then if we get there this morning, number five, we'll deal with the remaining corruption. So we have this this picture of what happens during the fall. Uh, As we look at paragraph 3, we're primarily looking at that phrase, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed or transmitted. So in other words, what Adam and Eve did in the garden did not just affect, for illustration purposes, did not just affect Adam. So in other words, Adam's sin was not just effective to him. In other words, it created more than just a problem in Adam. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 15 as we read, and we saw that in, as in Adam, verse 22, all die. Because of Adam's fall, his bad or corrupt nature, the corrupt account was imputed to our account. Because Adam fell, we fell. Again, we've been dealing with this very deep thought of why am I held responsible for the sin of another? And again we'll get into a a a more fitting illustration as to how we ought to look at this Uh, we're often tempted to say this doesn't seem fair why do i have to be counted with adam although the implications of that are even deeper than what i think we're thinking about this morning but how did it affect us how were you and i affected by the reality of this fall well we see Paul, as he was writing to the church at Corinth, he says, For as in Adam all die. He announces that here is what's on the record of every person who's ever lived. In Adam, all of us die. But that verse is a wonderful reminder. It doesn't stop there, does it? It says, For in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. It can't be disputed that all men die because of Adam's sin, but it also can't be disputed that man can live in Christ to be dead and alive. So what happens? Every one of Adam's descendants received an imputation in the negative sense of a corrupt account. In other words, if you and I were left to stand on our own merits, on our own account, apart from Christ, it would be declared that our record, the imputed account, would find us guilty. Every one of us. We'd be found guilty and we would remain guilty without any hope of being redeemed from that situation. On the second hand, the second side of that, there's also that phrase back in paragraph 3, sin was imputed, corrupted nature conveyed. So now you have this picture that not only was a corrupt account credited to us, but we also had given to us or conveyed to us a corrupt nature. So not only was our account pointing out our guilt, but our very nature would declare that we're guilty. So the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to us, and Adam's corrupt nature is conveyed to us. Does that make sense? So he it's imputed and conveyed. So we're born, some of you might be familiar with the late pastor, Albert Martin. He has a booklet out. It's entitled A Bad Record and a Bad Heart. It's a short little booklet, but it's tremendous. And he makes comments about this and he, he records it in that way. He looks at everything as a bad record and a bad heart. I'd encourage you to get that booklet if you can find it. I believe the uh, Belief Chapel Library, where we get a lot of our, our information and all of our booklets and tracks from, uh, I think you can order it there. But he, he really has a lot to say about the reality of what it means to have a bad record and a bad heart. So we're, we're dealing with the reality that all descendants of Adam are born guilty, and we're all born with that fallen nature that condemns us in that covenant of works that we've been talking about. Remember, in the covenant of works, we're found that every man and woman falls short. If we're left to ourselves to work for our salvation, none of us are good enough to earn it. So if we'd have been left in that state, a covenant of works without a covenant of grace, Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, That's where we begin to see the reality of what happens to our corrupt account and our corrupt nature. So this bad record, like Martin would mention, or the corrupt account, uh, what Adam did is imputed. Now the word imputed or imputation means to be reckoned to or to be credited to. This is not just a banking term. A lot of people take the position that this is that Paul was trying to describe a banking term. No, I would suggest to you he was, he was giving us an illustration of a legal term. In other words, this is not about how you stand financially, and we can't really use the bank account, but he said you can use it in a legal account. In other words, how do we stand legally before God if we are left in our own corrupt account. Our corrupt account would mean that we would be found guilty. So remember, God had made a covenant with Adam and he told Adam that you just do not eat of that one tree, don't eat of it. That was the covenant. If you do not eat of that, then you will be able to exceed, or receive rather, eternal life. Adam is the moral representative, but don't miss this. Imputation tells us that Adam is also our legal representative. In other words, this is not just a moral issue. This is a legal issue. My standing before God is not just on my morality. It's also based on the legal standing. Who is the ultimate judge? God himself is the judge. God's justice is always perfect. It's always fair. Now remember, when we question God's fairness, it's not because God is unfair. We just have a wrong understanding of what fairness is in the eyes of God. See, we think it's unfair if it directly affects us. So we could say at this morning, it's unfair that I received a corrupt account or I had reckoned into my legal standing before God, why am I held responsible for Adam's sin?" That just doesn't seem fair. Now we've already talked about this on a very practical level that had you been given the responsibility as Adam was given, I can already tell you what you would have done. You would have done the same thing Adam did. You and I wouldn't have been any better. You know, we've all heard that and some of us grew up in situations where people would say, "You know, praise God had I been Adam, I wouldn't have eaten." You would have. You you would have done the same thing. That's the nature of sin. Sin always wants what it's not supposed to have. But you've got to remember, to be acceptable before God, it's not just your moral standing, it's the the legal standing. You have to have righteousness that's worthy of God's judgment credited to your account. Without that, you and I do not have any ground to stand on. So, Often terms, and some of you may not be familiar with this, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this today because I don't don't want to muddy the water, but some of you may come across things when you read that describes Adam as being the federal head. And again, when you see that, this is what's talking about that picture of Adam being our moral and legal representative. So all of his natural descendants... And by the way, before we say, well, who is that? It's all of you. It's me. We're all descendants. We're all, this, this was credited, imputed to all of our account. Because Adam disobeyed and broke the covenant of works, Adam's sin, first of all, okay, This is where, this is where we really need to get this. Not only was Adam's sin imputed to us, but his guilt was conveyed unto us as well. In other words, it's bad enough we got sin on our record. But to make matters worse, we also have the guilt. So now the fairness people say, well, this really isn't fair. Why am I held responsible for Adam's sin, first of all? And secondly, I'm guilty for a sin I didn't commit? Paul was writing, for as in Adam, how many die? All. All die. That's the reality of this imputation and this conveyance. So what have we had imputed? We had a corrupt, corrupt nature, a corrupt account, all as a result of Adam. And we also, just like Adam, received the curse of death. That, that curse is still in play. Man dies because of the curse. Dies physically. Now we've, we've read over over the last few weeks, uh, we've looked at Romans chapter number 5, but if you want to go back there again today, let's just briefly uh, just review one aspect of this again. In Romans 5, Paul had been dealing with, at the church, with the church at Rome and he's been dealing about the same thing. And we know when we went through our verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans, we spent quite a bit of time in Romans 5. Paul covers the reality of everything that it is to be justified by the blood of Christ. But it's when Paul gets to the second half of that chapter when he deals with the abundant grace of Christ. So he starts this section off by talking about the blood of Christ, and that's where justification is found. But then he conveys, or the reality, of the abundant grace of Christ. And you remember what it said in verse 12 there, Romans 5, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now notice that. That means every man sinned, by this one man this isn't even talking about you being alive and sinning and by your own choosing sinning that verse talks about because of adam's sin by one man's sin it sinned into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned you have the picture here of that imputation and conveyance Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if, through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. So I mentioned this before. Some question God's fairness. Uh, One of the greatest accusations made against God, I think one of the saddest accusations against God, is that God is not fair. Now, I don't know about you, but when something is happening, one of the first things that I think about is, is that fair? I'm just being honest with you. When something happens, the first thing I say, is that fair? When something happens to a person, I say, is that fair? If somebody gets charged with something, I say, is that fair? Especially if there's a possibility there's a false accusation. Every time we see a false accusation, we immediately begin to say, well, that's not fair. Why is that person being accused of something they didn't do? And worse yet, why are they paying the penalty for something that they did not do? Now, if I look at sin that way, and I look at Adam's fall that way, you are going to struggle all your life with whether or not God is fair. But the reality is, as we get our doctrine of what the scripture says, and the scripture says, whether we think it's fair or not, is that, for as in Adam, all men die." So you could say, I don't like the implications of that, but the reality is, is you still, and I still, have this on our record apart from Christ. So let's deal more with this fairness. The man or the woman that says, how can God blame me for something I didn't personally do? We ought to ask the same question, and probably more importantly, how can God credit me with something I didn't personally do? In other words, we're all about how can I be charged with something I didn't do, but do we stop to think about but why were you credited with the righteousness of Christ? You had nothing to do with it. Now therein is where, sadly, we find there becomes divisions between brethren. Who is the source of that righteousness? Where does that righteousness come from? Make no mistake about it. The Bible teaches you and I are not responsible for a single drop of our salvation. Now, it seems like we should be. It seems like a fair God is going to just announce this and is going to say to everybody, here it is, take it if you want it. That seems fair to the human mind. But in reality, the beauty of the gospel is that we are credited with something we didn't personally do. So where the bad record was, the corrupt record, where the corrupt nature is, We get credited with a new account and a new nature. All for the low price of absolutely free. Free. (laughs) So I could sit here today and I could say, I don't like the implications of being accused in Adam but I certainly love the reality that I am being credited with something I didn't personally do. Yes, sinners are in fact guilty in Adam, but they're made righteous in Christ. That is a picture of the glory of the grace of God. So this corrupt nature, or this, as Martin puts it, this bad heart. So not only do we have this Record, this corrupt account, but we have this corrupt nature as well, this bad heart. Not only is sin of Adam imputed to us, but Adam's sin nature is conveyed to us. We are born into this world, cut off in communion with God. Now, again, someone would say it doesn't seem fair that an innocent baby that's born can be held. Guilty. But yet, scripturally speaking, even the newborn babe in Christ is initially cut off from God. Dead in trespasses and sin. The fairness people say, well, that's not fair. The baby didn't do anything. Because in Adam, all men die. Now, that's a hard truth to grasp. Because all of us who've experienced, as parents, if we're a parent, we've experienced a child being born. And at that moment, our thought is, that child is innocent. But yet, according to the word of God, no one's born innocent. Yet, without the imputed righteousness of Christ, a man and a woman is born under the wrath and the curse of God totally depraved throughout every facet of our being. We've been studying this, that it doesn't just affect one part of us, it's the totality of our being. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter number 2 we he'd like to turn there, makes mention of this reality of this this nature, this sin nature, and he he reminds the church at Ephesus. This is, uh, I don't want to make the assumption, but this is uh, primarily known by many people who study their Bible regularly. These won't be new verses to you. But Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul, as he's introducing the whole principle of being saved by grace, he says in verse 1, And you hath he quickened, the word quickened means to make alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's why we, also, we often talk about the reality, can a dead man raise himself? No, the Bible says he quickened them. He made they who were dead in trespasses and sin, He made them alive. Wherein, in time past, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and here it is, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Paul uses the word nature. We were by nature, a corrupt nature, the children of wrath. And again, we love verse 4. But God. But God. It doesn't say, but I, Paul, or, but you, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved. us. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy, and God with his great love, he loved us. A person who was born with a corrupt account and a corrupt nature. Nothing lovable. Yet, Paul, he goes on and writes throughout Ephesians, and that's for another time. Go back to Psalm 51, a psalm of David. David, writing, of course, in this particular psalm, is a this is David when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And we all know the story. Nathan confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba, and he tells him the story about stealing sheep. And Nathan, I can just see this interaction in my mind. David's getting angrier and angrier by the person who stole the sheep. And Nathan, in a very direct way, says, Thou art the man. Psalm 51 is David's plead for forgiveness. He's pleading with God for forgiveness. And in verse number 5, he said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And I love this verse, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. David goes on to use phrases like, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, Created me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Verse 16, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. David says, what I need from you, God, is not a sacrifice, because if a sacrifice would restore me, then I'd give it to you. He's saying, that's not what you need. He says, rather, the sacrifices of God, and this is beautiful, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. God will never despise a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Listen, folks, if we go before God with that kind of prayer of confession before God, He will not turn you away. Sadly, and this is not an indictment against any of us, it's between you and the Lord, but often these types of confessions are missing from our Christian walk. Oftentimes our prayers are not prayers of confession, our prayers are rather prayers of possession. We want God to give us something without it requiring anything of us. Well, what's it require? According to David, it requires a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Over in Psalm 58, a similar statement is made about the reality of wickedness. Psalm 58.3, where does it begin? The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born. Speaking lies. That's hard to imagine. (laughs) It's hard to imagine that God actually means what he says. Because, again, this seems like that fairness question. But God, wait a minute. He He or she doesn't even have a recognition of what sin is. That's why scripture talks about, for in Adam, all men die. Again, the greatest question and greatest conflict man has with God is about fairness. And again, I would implore you to say, don't focus so much on why is this fair that I am declared guilty with Adam, but rather, why am I declared righteous for something I didn't do? So we could say that man is really condemned on two fronts. He has a corrupt account and he has a corrupt nature. Most of us, let me rephrase that, many of us grew up understanding that a person is only guilty of sin when they know it and willfully do it, not according to Scripture. Now we're getting into the idea of personal sin. Remember, you've got original sin and you've got personal sin. Original sin originated with Adam. Personal sin originated with us. And remember, we learned that even had we not been guilty of personal sin, we would still be guilty by original sin. So the person that says, well, God, and again, I'm I'm using it in the fairness question. God would never send somebody to hell unless they knowingly and willfully were guilty of sin. Yet the Bible already teaches us that from the womb, he's already condemned and the wrath of God already abides on him. In John chapter number 3, Jesus' account with Nicodemus, and then the interaction again, I, I almost hate to pull one verse because there's so much to this. But John, in John 3.36, it tells us, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Condemnation, Jesus had been talking about earlier in the chapter. In John 3, we know John 3.16 We rejoice in John 3.16, but what about John 3.17? For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Here it is. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. That's extremely important. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. What makes man so desperate for God is because he realizes there is absolutely nothing he can do to remedy his own condition. And friends, until we get to the place where we truly understand that I play no part in remedying my condition, many grow up with the idea that God's done his part, now you do your part. Salvation is not a 50-50 proposition. It's not a 75-25 proposition. It's not an 85-15. Are you seeing the point? It's not ninety ten. 10 It's not 99-1. It's not 99.5. It's 100% the act of God. Which leads us to say, no man can boast. If I could boast in a tenth of my own salvation, I would be violating what Scripture says. Even if I just said, but it's ten—it's a tenth of a percent, God. Surely you require a tenth of a percent from me. That only seems fair that you've got to... We already know what man does when he's left to himself. The covenant of works proved it. He can't do it. And yet... Were it not for God's saving mercy and grace, every person would die in their sins. So, how does God remedy all this situation? The imputation dealing with a new account salvation. God saves sinners under the terms of another covenant. We've been building up to this the covenant of grace. Not through the work of Adam but through the work of the last Adam or the second Adam, which is whom? It's Christ. It's as if God totally turns away from the covenant of works and says, there's nothing there. I'm simplifying this. There's nothing there. But I'm turning now to He who is the remedy. Christ. It's as if God says, in in Adam, all men die. It goes back to 1 Corinthians 15. And in Christ, all men will live. Imputation and this idea of conveyance, yes, it describes the curse of a broken covenant, the broken covenant of works. That's the covenant that Adam broke. But it also describes the blessings of the covenant of grace that needed to still be kept. In other words, the covenant of grace is not just some nebulous idea. Somebody had to actually keep the terms of that covenant. And that's only one person who could christ had to keep it he who knew no sin he who was perfect so what is really the good news of the gospel the true good news of the gospel is not ask jesus into your heart that's not the gospel that doesn't even make sense on its surface The gospel is God's divine designed plan where he saves men from their desperate situation. You've heard me say this, and it it garners some controversy, but unless a man fully knows how depraved and utterly helpless he is, I don't believe he's even near the doorstep of salvation. It It can't just be if you want to go to heaven, pray. That would make it a work. Even David said, if it was a sacrifice that you wanted, I would bring it. But sacrifices, even a burnt offering, is nothing. So how does he save men from this desperate situation? It's by way of this covenant. Now, instead of making a covenant with Adam, God, before the foundation of the world, makes a covenant with Christ. Adam failed it. The last Adam, the second Adam, Christ, doesn't fail. So, just like all of us who are united to Adam in the fall, all of us who are in Christ are united to the last Adam by the consequences of his obedience. Adam disobeyed, broke the covenant. Jesus Christ kept the covenant by perfect obedience. Remember, a lot of people look at Jesus Christ and his earthly life as just a good way to live your life, as a good example. Do you realize that it's not about a good example? That was part of the perfect obedience. Churches are often guilty of doing Bible studies on the, on the life of Christ. And instead of focusing on the eternal work that he's doing, they say, now here's a grand way to live your life. But do you realize that He lived His life, being tempted at all points as we are, yet without sin? That was the requirement of fulfilling that covenant of grace. Had Jesus Christ one time sinned, He would have fallen just as badly as Adam fell. So if 2 Corinthians 5.21 that tells, He who knew no sin, if it was He knew one sin. We're hopeless. We're absolutely hopeless. So what do we receive? We receive a new account. The righteous of Christ is imputed to those who are united to Him by faith. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Christ now acting as that legal representative. He becomes the substitute. He becomes the ransom. He becomes the surety of his people. He perfectly keeps the requirements of the covenant. So by Christ's obedience, all those who are united to him are considered legally righteous before God. Same as Adam's sin was imputed to our account, as though our own sin, Christ's righteousness, which he fulfilled, is imputed or credited to us. And here's the kicker. And it's counted as our righteousness. Now you tell me how a person with a corrupt account, a corrupt nature, a person who's born sinning, all of a sudden now gets to take credit for righteousness that will stand before the ultimate judge. Almighty God. I still cannot get my mind around that. For many years, I didn't even know that existed. My entire salvation was based upon what I thought I prayed. Never once did I think about my legal standing before God. Neither once, never once did I say, I wonder if when God sees me, He sees Christ. So someone would say, what is your salvation testimony? And I would say, when I was seven years old, I asked Jesus into my heart. That was my testimony. And yet, I've told some of you this, it's written in a Bible. It's written in a Bible that I had at the time. I was saved on this day. Yet I had no true recognition of who Christ was at that point in my life. I've come to find out that was really just the beginning of where Christ really started to deal with me through his word. And it was a, for me, it was a series of years before I ever came to the place where I actually looked at myself and said, You are worse than I thought. I mean, I knew I was bad. I wasn't a perfect child. It's hard to believe, isn't it? I wasn't a perfect child. But I never thought I was that bad. But yet, somehow along the way, I see my depravity, I see my wretchedness, and yet then I see Christ. And I see Christ shining and standing there as if he is now taking my place. Sadly, there are places around this country, churches where believers have no idea what the imputed righteousness of Christ means. They've never heard the term. I didn't truly even hear the term until I was close to 30. And yet, we get this imputed as if it were our own righteousness. That is justification. It's important to realize why this is a legal situation is that Christ took upon himself all the legal requirements. Christ needed to do really two things. He had to keep the covenant of works perfectly on behalf of his people. But there's the second part. The second part is he had to suffer the penalty of a broken covenant. What is the penalty of breaking the covenant? Death. So when people scream out, I wish Jesus didn't die on the cross, you're screaming in ignorance. Because if he doesn't die, then he doesn't pay the second part of the requirement. Now, that doesn't mean we say, "Boy, I, you know, I, I I'm glad Jesus Christ suffered all that. I'm glad he died all that." We understand what we're talking about here. But when people say, "Why did Jesus have to die?" or people say, "I want to be saved, but I don't really want to recognize the death of Christ." If you don't recognize the death of Christ, you don't recognize the resurrection of Christ. And if there is no death, then there is not a fulfillment of the covenant. If there's no resurrection, then the day you die, you're without hope. So those two aspects, again, just like I dealt with when I introduced the word federal to you, I don't want to dig too deep into this, but these two aspects of Christ needing to keep the covenant perfectly, and also needing to suffer the penalty, that's what's referred to as, God, as Christ's active and passive obedience. It's active and passive. If all Christ had done was paid the penalty for our sins, one person described it this way, we'd just break even. But God, through Christ, did more than that. The very test that Adam failed, Christ passed it. Therefore, the reward, had Adam obeyed, would have been salvation. But now that reward belongs to Christ. So just as Adam was a legal representative, on the negative side, Christ is the positive representative. Nothing less than eternal life. So God's method doesn't just require a new account. Gives us a new nature. God's method of salvation not only includes a new record by the virtue of the righteousness of the justification, but it also gives us a new heart. We inherited a dreadful nature from Adam. Your old nature, that's still in there, still loves sin. There's an old nature that's still there that is at enemy with God. It's it's still in conflict. But when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, He gives us a new nature. There ought to be within us a new nature that loves righteousness. And we're now able to understand spiritual things. See, if God had left us in our old state with just our old nature, we would have continued just to love sin. And yet the holy spirit lives within the believer John 3 as Jesus and I'll finish with this John 3 as Jesus was telling Nicodemus you must be born again why because it is that very birth from above that gives us that new nature 2 Corinthians 5:17 says if any man be in Christ he is a new creature old things are passed away and all things are become new. Next week we'll deal with, and we, we kind of touched on them today, but we'll review them next week. We'll deal with paragraph four and five. Uh, we, we, we touched them today. We'll elaborate a little bit more on them, but I hope this morning, uh, that this has been uh, a big help to you. Okay. All right. Uh,